continue our series of messages through Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. And last Sunday, with a focus on hope, we moved into chapter 5 and examined six assertions, or as I label them, six assurances that you and I share because of our faith. And faith, at this point, is not a body of knowledge. But it must be understood in terms of allegiance and loyalty. Which, by the way, having read several first century documents, I am more and more convinced every day that that is the true domain of the word pistes, the Greek word for faith. It does not have to do with something that we keep in our heads, but it has to do with our loyalty and our allegiance too. Uh, And uh, as we stated, Christian hope is different. It's it's not like hoping for good weather uh, or even good health. Because Christian hope is based on a person and on secure promises. And I pointed out that the first words of chapter 5 let us know that Paul is summing up what all that he has said up to this point means. And he uses a word that says that we have these assurances based on or resting on the security of that first sentence. Since, therefore, we are justified by faith, faithfulness, loyalty, allegiance. And if you look again at that first section, Paul stresses that having been both justified, verse 1, and reconciled, all of us are enjoying peace with God. And that's, that's the Advent word for today, peace. Last week, hope. Today, peace. We're all enjoying peace with God. We are standing in grace. We are rejoicing in the present sufferings and future glory. And we are assured of our final salvation and exulting in God through Christ by whom these blessings have become ours. And the main theme of this first half of chapter 5 is reconciliation. A word which means peace. We have peace with God and His people by means of or through the work of Jesus. But again with the writer Hebrews, if we remain faithful, if we remain loyal. And this actually looks ahead to the end of chapter 8 verses 37 and 8 where he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all of creation. He covers it all. Boom. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. And let me make one of those fine line distinctions this morning to maybe clear up how I might have been a little confusing last Sunday. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. 
But there is a vast difference between the eternal security of the believer and once saved, always saved. Those of us who are believers, who are truly loyal, we don't have to worry about our salvation. We have a loving God. But, at the same time, and He says nothing can separate us, but He doesn't say we can't choose to separate ourselves. We can walk away. God's not going to hold you captive if you don't want to be a part of His loving family. I like the way C.S. Lewis worded it. He said there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Okay, Thy will be done. As we begin to examine our text today, Notice that just as Paul began last week's text with a therefore statement, our text today is going to begin with another therefore. And the word must not be overlooked. It shows that our text for today, verses 12 to 21, they're not just words put in to add length as you might do in a term paper. Uh, it's not an alien intrusion into an argument. It's not an isolated section that's unconnected with what precedes or what follows, or even a parenthesis. But it's a logical development by Paul. Indeed, a conclusion of his position as presented thus far, and a necessary transition to what's going to come next. In fact, there are two particular links between the first half of chapter 5 and the second half. The first is that Paul attributed our reconciliation and salvation to the death of God's Son, verses 9 and 10. And that naturally raises a question. Okay, how can one person's sacrifice bring such blessing to so many? And that's the question Paul addresses in our text today in the second half. Paul's answer is contained in his analogy that he develops between Adam and Christ. For both demonstrate the principle that many can be affected for good or ill by just one person's action. And don't we see that every day in life? Somebody does something and those fingers of pain just reach out in many directions. The second link between the two halves of Romans 5 is that both conclude with the expression through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our final verse last Sunday emphasized the abundant blessing that comes from being reconciled to God. More than that, he said, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have received reconciliation. Again, in keeping with our Advent focus. Hear the word peace. We have peace with God. And our final verse this morning, verse 21, is going to once again point to the eternal life that's available through Christ our Lord. You see, the sacrificial death of Jesus is sufficient to accomplish the task. Now it's important to remember that Paul is determined to honor Jesus as the one and only mediator of all beings. I heard an interesting discussion this week about somebody who was basically a universalist who believed that, well, everybody in the end is going to be saved. 
And the other person came back to what Jesus said and what John recorded when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. So, we need to take note in our text for today how Paul will present both Adam and Christ, the respective heads of the old and the new humanities, in such a way as to demonstrate the overwhelming superiority and sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. So let's dig into our text. Therefore, ding, 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 uh-huh, let's go back, let's look. Romans 12, 1, therefore. And there, he's talking about all 11 chapters up to 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like that transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Did you notice the comparison and contrast that's going on in that passage? Swiss theologian Frederick Louis Godet marveled at what he saw as the mathematical precision of Paul's writing. And when I read that, my mind started churning because as many of you know, I think mathematically. Uh, John Stott said it may be likened to a well-chiseled carving or a carefully constructed musical composition. But I like that mathematical precision. Because what Paul does in the text is kind of like, well, let me say it this way. I've been presenting images for you to use to help focus our thinking. What about that thing we looked at in school called the Venn Diagram? A, Paul, 
C, Adam. A without B, what Christ did. C without B, what Adam accomplished. B, how they're similar, not much, but a little. The contrast, all of that comes out in this passage that we're looking at. It's a tool. A Venn diagram is a tool for comparing and contrasting two different items. And in case you didn't notice, our text divides into three short paragraphs, in each of which Adam and Christ are related to each other, although with significant differences. So today we ask, first, verses 12 to 14, of how Adam and Christ are introduced, and Adam is responsible for sin and death, and as a pattern of the one to come, interestingly, verse 14, who is Christ. Second, verses 15 to 17, we'll see how Adam and Christ are contrasted. In each of these three verses, the work of Christ is said to be either not like Adam's or much more successful than Adam's. And third, in verses 18 to 21, Adam and Christ are compared. And the structure now, especially in verses 18, 19, and 21, is just as, so also. For through one man's deed, in Adam's case, disobedience, whereas for Christ it was obedience, the many have either been cursed or blessed. So let's look first at what Paul says in terms of the introduction of the main characters as to the legacy of Adam, which is sin and death. Paul begins with a sentence that he never completes. I had what I now understand to be a pleasure, but at the time I thought was a horrible way to torture college students in second year Greek. I had the task of parsing some of Paul's sentences. Remember how you used to diagram? Put the noun, a line, a verb, and then underneath there'd be a prepositional phrase or an adjective or an adverb. Paul writes some unbelievable sentences. In our Bibles, we have whole paragraphs that were one sentence of Paul. And he begins the sentence, therefore, just as sin entered... But the corresponding words that we would expect, so also, as in the sentence structure of 18, 19, and 21, never come. We would expect Paul to say, so also through one man righteousness entered the world. And indeed, this is more or less what Paul does later as he is regarding what possibly many regard as the completion of that first sentence that he began in 12. But instead... He breaks off his argument to explain and justify what he says in verses 13 and 14. The topic of verse 12 is sin and death. And this is the legacy of Adam. Paul then describes three downward spiraling steps, deteriorating stages in human history, from that one man sinning to all men dying. 
First, he says, centered into the world through one man. Now, Adam's not named, but he's obviously meant. And let me add that Paul is not concerned here with the origin of evil in some general way. This isn't a statement to support those who believe in total depravity. He's only concerned with how sin invaded the world of human beings and it entered through one man's disobedience, Adam. Now, of course Paul knew that Eve was there. In fact, I've shared with you, I don't think Adam would have taken a bite of that fruit if, in fact, the penalty for eating and disobeying death would have happened to Eve right away. If she had taken that bite and dropped dead, New Testament, Priscilla, not Priscilla and Aquila, uh, brain dead, the couple that lied about the money to Paul. Is this how much you sold your property for? He drops dead. I don't think if they'd have carried him out, I think if he'd have been laying right there and they'd have asked her, is that in fact, we asked him and he didn't tell the truth, is that how much you sold the property for? I think if she'd have seen him laying there dead, she'd have probably told the truth. But the penalty for sin is delayed. And we think, oh, that nothing's going to come of this. Everything will be all right. Nobody will find out. Or it'll be a long time since they, till they do find out and, and they won't feel so emphatic about it anymore. Second, Death then entered the world through sin. As Adam was the door through which sin entered, sin was the door through which death entered. And Paul's pointing back to Genesis 2.17 and 3.19 where death, both physical and spiritual, is said to have been the penalty for disobedience. And then third, in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Now, Paul's still handling the relationship between sin and death. But now he moves on from their presence in one person to their presence in all the human race. And moreover, he sees a similarity between the two situations. But what is the meaning of that third statement? Death came to all men because all are sinners. In what sense have all sinned so that all die? Is this a statement regarding the taint of original sin as if it passed down genetically? Since our Advent focus again is on peace, think with me about the cross for a bit. We like to identify with Pilate who washed his hands and declared his innocence. We're not guilty, we say. It had nothing to do with us. And we strive for a feeling of peace about it. But you know, the the apostles disagree. Not only did Herod and Pilate, not only did both Gentiles and Jews conspire against Jesus, but the sins which led to His death are our sins also. If we turn away from God, The writer of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 6 says, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again. There's a Ray Bolt song. I don't know if you remember it. I used to sing it. I loved it. It's a song that said, does he still feel the nails every time I fail? 
Can he hear the crowd cry, crucify again? If I'm causing you pain, Oh, dear Lord. I mean, it's just a beautiful song thinking about the fact that it's not what they did that caused Christ to be crucified. It's what I do. It's what I do every day. You know, maybe you remember the Negro spiritual that we used to sing. Were you there when they crucified our Lord? You see, the only possible answer is is that we were there. And not merely as spectators. But we were there as guilty participants. Horatius Bonar, the 19th century Scottish hymn writer, expressed it well. He said, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery." You know, maybe we should think of the cross not as a deed done by us. Maybe it would help us to understand that there's also that aspect that it was a sacrifice offered for us. Again, pointing to Romans 6, Paul would affirm that believers have become identified by Christ by means of our immersion, our baptism, in His death and resurrection. And so have died and risen with Him. We are convinced, he says, that one died for all and therefore all died. That is, by our union with Him. And, he goes on to say, we live for Him who died for them and was raised again. And so there is a truth in the fact of what the writer of Hebrews says when he says, Levi paid tithes in and through his ancestor Abraham. When it says that Israel sinned in and through Achan, we have hounded Christ to the cross in and through His enemies, and in particular, if it is true that we have sinned in and with Adam, and I believe it is, it is yet more gloriously true that we died and rose again with Christ. So Paul ends the paragraph, verses 12 to 14, by giving the very briefest possible allusion to the corresponding figure of Christ. Christ is what was, in in his terms, he said, Adam was a pattern of the one to come. The Messiah. The typos. He prefigured, he foreshadows Christ. But how? We see like Adam. Christ is the head of a whole new humanity. Look again at verse 14. But yet, Paul's no sooner said that than he feels embarrassed by the anomaly, the impropriety of what he said. To be sure, there is a superficial similarity between them in the fact that each, through each one of them, through each of their deeds, disobedience and obedience, enormous numbers of people are affected. But that's where the likeness between them certainly ends. I mean, think about it. How can we compare, and this is the second point, the Lord of glory and the man of shame? And the point Paul makes is that it's not a parallel. It's a contrast. 
It's an antithesis, an anti-thesis. So before returning to that single, singular, I'll get it, that single similarity between the two, he wants to elaborate on the dissimilarities. Christ is the head of the new, the age of life. Adam, he was the head of the old, the age of death. And each verse between 15 and 17, each one of those verses embodies a statement that Christ's gift is either not like Adam's trespass or more effective than it. And the differences concern the nature of the two actions, the immediate results of those actions, and their ultimate effects. So, having completed his contrast between Adam and Christ, Paul then goes on to develop the comparison. And his sentence structure is no longer not like or how much more is in verses 15 to 7, but just as, so also. And so now in verses 18 to 21, while emphasizing the parallel, he will not overlook the contrast. Just as, so also, is intended to highlight the similarity. That through the act of one man, the destiny of many is determined. And once again, notice the blessing. What Paul is beginning to describe in verses 18 to 21 is in fact the reign of grace. Now think about it. God's made ample provision for the increase of sin that was going to take place. Somebody was conversing with me week before last about the issue of things getting worse. And they tried to equate that with the tribulation that will come before the rapture. And, and you know that I don't go there. So, uh, But I do believe things are getting worse. And I do believe that things are going to continually get worse until Christ returns. And it won't be a rapture. It'll be the second coming. It'll be when the day of judgment is here. And at that point, for many, it'll be too late. But, having said that, the message Paul wants us to hear is that the death of Jesus is sufficient. Verse 20, For where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And this allusion to grace introduces Paul's third comparison between Adam and Christ in which he takes up the ultimate issues, life and death. It's true that verse 21 contains no explicit mention of Adam, but he kind of lurks behind it all in all the same in, in that reference to sin and death. And once more, the contrasts are not forgotten. As grace and life are set in opposition to sin and death, the emphasis, uh, emphasis is again on the parallel which compares the two reigns of the two kinds of reign. God's purpose is that just as sin reigned in death, 
so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. Nothing could sum up better the blessings of being in Christ than the, the expression the reign of grace. For, listen to me, grace forgives. Grace forgives sins. How? Through the cross. And it bestows on the sinner both righteousness and abundant or eternal life. And grace satisfies the thirsty soul and fills the hungry with good things. Grace sanctifies sinners, shaping them into the image of Christ. Grace perseveres even with the recalcitrant, offering them opportunity after opportunity to return. We saw that in the history of Israel. (coughs) But we also saw in the history of Israel the point at which God said, that's it. No more. You go into bondage. And so, if you're not already, I think once we become convinced that grace reigns, we'll remember that God's grace is a throne of grace, enabling us to become somebody who can boldly come to the throne and receive mercy and find grace. And all of this is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, a nutshell. You won't get, you won't give a better gift this Christmas season than what God gave to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. I would be glad. I would be thrilled to not get a single gift for Christmas if I knew some of the people that I love dearly would get a wake-up call and would accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So here's my challenge for you today. It's to understand that because of the love of God, the one who was born King of the Jews is now sitting at the right hand of God on the throne enabling us to have real peace. I remember it most vividly when my grandmother died. And I saw the difference in how some of the family was grieving as though they had no hope. And we, knowing how much my grandmother had suffered, knowing that her heart had given out and her extremities were already dying, We were sad at the loss. But we had peace knowing that we would see my mother again. And that, my friends, is the message of Christmas. That in that humble, lowly, stable cave 
in a feeding trough known as a manger, not a fancy little bed, wrapped in cloths that are normally used for the dead. The news was first made to outcasts, not to the dressed up, clean, religious people at the temple. Now they received a message of judgment. Let's pray. Father God, help us to understand the love a little bit better through this season. The love that we saw last week provides us hope. The love that can provide us peace as we strive to serve you in many different ways this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.